Assurance of Pardon is sponsored by Logos Bible Software, the most advanced Bible study tool for both ministers and laypeople. Available on iOS and Android for phones and tablets, as well as on your Windows or Mac computer or laptop. Get the most of your time in the scriptures with Logos Bible Software. For more information and 15% off your next Logos package plus five free ebooks, visit assuranceofpardon.com slash logos. Now on with the show. Welcome to Assurance of Pardon, a podcast about the gospel, the Bible, the church, what it all means and why it all matters. I'm Scott Davis, pastor of Hope Presbyterian Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Uh, Gage is uh, hopefully going to be jumping in uh, in a little bit. He's having some some Zoom Wi-Fi issues, but we have back on the show today our good friend, the, the Reverend Kevin Hale from Christ Church Conway, because we have a special uh, guest and uh, he is one of uh, uh, Kevin's former professors, and so we are excited uh, to have Kevin on. Kevin, thanks, thank you for, for joining us. Yeah, man. Happy to be here. And uh, we have on with us today uh, Dr. Miles Van Pelt. He is the Alan Hayes Belcher Jr. Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages, Director of the Summer Institute of Biblical Languages, and Academic Dean for the RTS Jackson and Brazil campuses in RT. He joins us today from uh, from Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, Doc, Dr. Van Pelt, Miles, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here with you guys today. Uh, as, as everyone knows, we have been talking about hermeneutics and, and trying to introduce our listeners to uh, s- some tools to put into their Bible study toolbox that they can apply to help make more of their use of their time studying the scripture. We've talked about context. We've talked about authorial intent. We've <clears throat> talked about genre. And a couple weeks ago, we had Chad Bird on from the Lutheran tradition. And you may recall, Kevin, Chad, uh, really really frustrated gage and i because we we wanted chad to land on our side on this and we said uh, chad is it necessary really is it really necessary for a pastor to learn the languages i mean logos is just so full featured i mean can't i just i mean do i need a slide rule or can i just use my calculator and I wanted him to say, oh, man, just use Logos. It's so much easier. And he didn't. And so, uh, which is exactly what, what you have been saying for quite some time, Kevin. <clears throat> and so your love of Hebrew, you got from uh, Dr. Van- Miles Van Pelt at RTS. So, Dr. Van Pelt, tell us why uh, languages, studying languages for ministers is so important. That's a great question, and there are a lot of different ways uh, to answer that question. Um, One angle is just to simply talk about the nature of truth and um, having the the capacity to analyze the Word of God in the original languages so that when there are disputes or questions about theology, uh, that you're able to um, have at your fingertips the original wording and not a translation, which is good, but it's also one step removed from the original language, but perhaps the one that I frequently talk about more, uh, it's more of an existential issue, I guess, it's that knowing the original languages connects you to the biblical text in a way that transforms you in a way that reading the Bible and translation cannot. Um, It's like the difference between being engaged to a woman and being married to a woman. Being engaged is great, and it's a lot of commitment and work, 
the being married is so much better. Right? <laughs> and uh, and it, it's that closeness and, and connection, intimacy with the word of God that you have where you can kind of see and feel it in its original form. Um, yeah. I think so there, yeah, there, and there are just different, you know, time and culture and context, our context were so removed from the original culture that the Bible grew up out of. And so getting back to the original language is one of the way in which we can immerse ourselves in that original context and culture in a way that we can't any other way. <clears throat> Tell us a little bit about the the language program at RTS Jackson, and if you would be will, if you could tell us a little bit about maybe how it differs from from the language program at other seminaries to the degree that you're able to to speak to that. Sure, um, we teach all of our biblical languages in the summer um, in intensive uh, format, so we don't teach Hebrew one and two or Greek one and two over the academic year. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the context of all the other classes that you have to take, we actually um, have that kind of structure this thing called the Summer Institute for Biblical Languages. And it's like boot camp or, you know, or hell week in football, something like that, where you yeah. come and for eight weeks, you meet three hours a day, five days a week, studying Hebrew one and two or studying Greek one and two. And you have to reduce your outside workload in terms of work or ministry you have to uh, reduce your other commitments and you just focus on the on either hebrew or greek for eight weeks and during that time you're able to accomplish more during those eight weeks than over the course of a whole academic year mm-hmm. uh, the, the intensity the repetition uh, the immersion all of it kind of um sinks in and allows you to make more progress in a shorter amount of time uh, and and it's and it builds camaraderie. One of the things we love about the Summer Institute for Biblical Languages, especially Hebrew, is that it's your first course in seminary. And so you come scared and you come not <laughs> knowing what to expect. And by the end of those eight weeks, hopefully you have a love for Hebrew. You have a love for the Bible and for the gospel that's inflamed. Uh, you have you have now peers that you have suffered with for eight weeks. And some of these peers will be friends for the rest of your life. And so we've even had people come from all over the world, um, Moldova, um, Honduras, uh, Canada, China, all kinds of places and come just for the summer to study with us and to learn those languages. We've even had uh, people meet and get married in the context of the Summer Institute for Biblical Languages. Wow. So there's a lot of benefit to that. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Another thing that allows people, even pastors, I've had pastors come, um, for, my, for Canada, for example, they just take eight weeks off and come and get the language and then go back if they haven't had a chance to get it before. And so it's, it's been nice. And it also allows some of my students to take it once or twice during their tenure. They can audit it a second time because it's not, it doesn't occur during any other class or season that they're taking classes. Yeah, that's great. And you also are the, you also wrote a uh, textbook in Hebrew published by Zondervan that is widely used at seminaries uh, of all theological stripes, if you would, if you would, uh, around the country and around the world. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your Zondervan course? And uh, by the way, I didn't tell you we were going to ask you about RTS Jackson, and I didn't tell you we were going to ask about your, your textbook, but if, uh, if you'd indulge us for a second. Yeah. So um, Gary Pratico, who um, has recently retired from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and myself some 20 years ago, more than that, 22 years ago, embarked on a program to try to produce a Hebrew grammar that would be serviceable for students. And um, we had to do a lot of arm twisting for Zondervan because they thought no one is going to study Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Come on. And, um, but 
but we made we made the pitch and a guy named Verlin Verbrugge, who was our editor, shepherded it through the process and God bless him. He just allowed us to go to do whatever we wanted and then create so many more resources after that. So we've done the grammar, the workbook, vocabulary cards, vocabulary guide, compact guide, graded reader, vocabulary and context. We've just D- tried DVDs, to DVDs, I know. Yeah, yeah. So when I took Hebrew back in 1990, um, there were really no good resources that were student friendly. Mm-hmm. And I really had this desire. I loved Hebrew so much. I loved the Bible so much. And I really felt like the lack of tools was prohibiting good and interested students from getting the language. And so I, we really just labored uh, with, it was fun labor to produce kind of the no excuse system. If you, if you want it, you can have it, right? Laminated summary sheets, all that kind of stuff. Zondervan has been very gracious to Gary Pratico and I just allowing us to produce as many possible resources as we thought students could use and would need. And so, and it is, it has been very rewarding. It's just recently been translated into French. Um, it's been translated into Chinese. It's been translated into, it's being translated into Spanish. It's been translated into Korean. Wow. So we're very thankful for uh, the kind of the kind of working in the basement of theological education, you know, kind of the, the biblical languages. No one sees them. They're not that sexy. And, you know, you're not going on a speaking tour uh, to talk about Hebrew grammar and stuff like that. But it, I see students become inflamed with a passion for the word of God in new ways when they get Hebrew and Greek. And that's really what, what, what is so rewarding to me. Yeah. Yeah. Scott, I want to jump in here. Uh, Miles is too demure to, to say why his program is better than other seminaries, but I will. Um, I, I took Greek and Hebrew in a number of contexts. I first took both of them at the university of Arkansas, classical Greek, and then actually biblical Hebrew. I studied with a rabbi at the university of Arkansas uh, using Lambden's textbook. And then I took uh, Hebrew through RTS virtual um, using the the old, this was like when it was the tape system and they mailed you cassette tapes <laughs> uh, at using Vingren's textbook, um, which Miles, if I remember right, once described, I think it was, I think it was, you might've been Brian Estelle, but one of y'all described it as, as basically um, free association Hebrew. He just kind of woke up every day and was like, I'm going to write about this today. And there's, it, it's, it's just wildly ordered. Um, I don't think anybody's ever cracked the code of how he put that together. Um, and then, and, and I did great in Hebrew one and two with RTS virtual, got good grades, you know, all that, uh, got to RTS Jackson and these guys were light years ahead of me. You know, I, I had done well, uh, you know, thought like, yeah, I'm, you know, got something going on. These guys were light years ahead of me because they were going through this two, two things. One, this more intensive program mm-hmm. where all you were, all you were focusing on was the languages. Uh, and two, uh, using miles textbook, which is beautifully organized, simplified where it needs to be simplified. Uh, it keep, keeps the detail where the detail needs to be, but is much more user-friendly than any of the other Hebrew textbooks that, that I have found out there. Um, and, and so I think the combination of those two things, uh, set the language program at RTS apart from, at least from other language programs, even one of them being an alternate language program at RTS that I don't know if it even exists anymore. Uh, it it sets it apart from these other programs that at least I have, uh, had to endure. And it's the same thing with Greek. Mounts's Greek is, is his basics of biblical Greek is set up similarly, uh, I guess it came first. So 
Miles is probably set up similarly to, similarly to his in simplifying it, getting rid of unnecessary paradigms ad nauseum, uh, and, and kind of being a little bit smarter about how the language is presented. And I think both of those things, um, it, it makes you realize that, hey, this is actually doable. Uh, if, if I, if I want to put in the work, I can learn this language and I can use it profitably in ministry to make sure I'm getting at the meaning of the word of God. Related to basics of biblical Greek and basics of biblical Hebrew with Bill Mounts. So Bill Mounts was my Greek teacher in college. I had um, at Azusa Pacific University. So I had Hebrew in 1990. And then in 1991, uh, I had graduated and, and was working at, at Azusa Pacific so I could take classes for free. So I took, um, so I took Greek from Bill Mounts. And I originally learned Hebrew with Weingren, like you were talking about, Kevin. And it was just like it was a catastrophe. Uh, I, I loved the language so much, but I just spent my whole time trying to memorize paradigms and look things up in a lexicon. I really didn't understand the system. Then that next year, Bill's approach, Mount's approach to teaching the language was revolutionary in my mind in terms of how he organized it. He was so clear. He's passionate about it. And I thought, man, someone needs to do for Hebrew what he has done for Greek. And, and so that's where it all kind of grew out. So you can see like my basics of biblical Hebrew with Gary Pratico and then basics of biblical Aramaic follow that pedagogical system the whole way through. And the nice thing is that once you learn one system, you come to RTS, learn one system, then you can learn Greek the same way and Aramaic the same way. So there's, it's, it, it all fits together in one kind of pedagogical map. And so I teach you, I teach you not only how, I don't want to teach you the language, but I teach you how to think about the language in, in categories. I kind of build bookshelves in your minds for how nouns work and how adjectives work and how verbs work and strong and weak verbs. And then you can just go put all the information in the right spots. Mm. And so um, it has been a good system. And um, I really sense, I really sense there's been a resurgence in the love and the teaching of the biblical languages um, across this nation and in other places as well. So I'm very thankful for it. In fact, I just spent some time on the phone this week with a chaplain from a correctional facility in Ohio, and he's got 20 to 25 inmates who want to take Hebrew. Wow. And so we're figuring out how to get in there and, and um, teach them Hebrew. And so it's just, it's very encouraging time. Cool. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, I, I'll ask you this and Kevin and I talked about this question I wanted to ask you and, and we, we, we really didn't know how you would respond. <laughs> and that is uh, it, it's, it's obviously very easy to make the case why um, ministers should learn the languages is what is your, what's your counsel to lay people saying, I, I'm probably not going to, uh, you know, a soccer mom, I'm probably not going to go to Jackson for, um, for eight weeks in the summer. Um, is there, is there, is there hope for me to get a better grasp on my Bible study? Is there, is there any resource you can point me toward that's going to help me, uh, uh I hate this phrase, take my Bible study to the next level, but is there any help for people who, who have not learned Greek or Hebrew or, sure. yeah. Yeah. There are, t there are lots of tools out there. Um, uh, for example, you know, good commentaries can help you in that way. I mean, you know, commentaries aren't just for pastors or scholars. I think commentaries are also for serious lay people who yeah. want help. Uh, understanding the text and you can there are good commentaries reliable commentary series out there that you can do that there are also things like um you know the net bible the nnt new english translation oh yes it comes, definitely. Um, called the net notes 
Mm-hmm. And there are, there's a lot of, I mean, if you, there's a lot of helpful information in those notes about the text. And you may not understand all of it if you don't have Hebrew or Greek, but you can understand enough to know where a problem exists. And then you can compare translations. Yeah. Donovan also has um, a book called Hebrew for the rest of us and Greek for the rest of us. And it's basically shows you how to use the Hebrew and Greek tools to get um, behind the text a little bit. Give, giving you the definition of some of those, yeah. some of those buzzwords like aorist yeah. and yeah. indicative and imperative as well. Right. Yeah. Kevin, but, but for the pastor or the, the teacher, right. It was in the past when the languages were being diminished in their usage, they were just saying, let's not teach them because no one's really using them, mm-hmm. but no one's really using them because they were teaching too little of it, not enough of it. Mm-hmm. So my goal is to give the, the student at RTS everything they need to, to have a fruitful lifelong ministry using Hebrew and Greek. So in fact, when I'm done with my Hebrew three course called Hebrew exegesis, students have the capacity to read 90% of the Hebrew Bible with, with the lexicon. So, and, um, I feel like that's, that's a, that's a good way to launch them out of the seminary environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, uh, Dr. Van Pelt, we, we, uh, uh, Miles rather, we, we talked about the, the particular verse that we wanted to have you on to discuss. And that is a verse from first Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. This is Samuel talking to King Saul and in, I'll read this from the English standard version. And uh, it says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Most of us recognize that from hearing that, or we recognize hearing, even if, even if uh, you've never read that passage, you've heard people just say, God chose David because David was, quote, a man after his own heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess the the what most people would say, most folks in the pew would say, God just saw this untapped potential in David, and he's a diamond in the rough, and so that's why he chose him. Tell us a little bit about how understanding the the Hebrew might lead us to a different interpretation of that. Sure. So that after God's own heart um, expression is a prepositional phrase in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually kilvavo, and it's probably more woodenly translated according to his heart. Prepositions can either modify nouns or nominals or verbs and verbals. And so a preposition that modifies a noun is adjectival, and a preposition that modifies a verb is adverbial. And when we read um, something like the ESV translation, um, that God has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, it sounds like in our ear, that the after his own heart is modifying the word man. So man is the antecedent Mm -hmm. or what is modifying and therefore adjectival. Um, But equally as likely is that it's modifying the word for choose there, that God has chosen for himself, according to his own heart, a man. Mm -hmm. So word order in Hebrew, Hebrew is like English. It's a, um, a word order language. It's not a case language. And so normal Hebrew word orders, verb, subject, object, modifier. And so the modifier, the prepositional phrase at the end, can modify really anything in the clause. And so it has to be determined from context, whether it's adjectival, modifying the word man, or adverbial, modifying the verb to choose. So that's kind of the issue. Um, 
And it's debated by scholars uh, as to whether it's actually adjectival or adverbial. So uh, recently, a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Jason Derushi, who is a research professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, has written a lengthy essay in a feshrift for Dan Block on it. He argues uh, persuasively, I believe, that the prepositional phrase, according to his heart, is not to be understood adjectivally, but adverbially. That is, the selection of David is the free will and free choice God's electing uh, sovereign grace in David's life, not anything in David himself. And, and so, um, and so you, would, you would translate it something like, that, um, like this, um, and the Lord um, sought, according to his own heart, a man, or, or according to his own will. And there are different, different, trans, different, not the standard Bible translations make it sound adjectival, but some translations uh, make it sound adverbial. Mm -hmm. And so it just depends. Helping translating some of these things can help. Um, in fact, I can, I can just pause it for a second. I had that open, but then we had to shut everything down. Yeah, that's okay. That's I okay. A, I, had a, I had a chart of all the translations. So let me just let me just um, paint the context that helps that a little bit. Please. That, um, when Israel um, asks for a king in First Samuel eight, okay, they ask for a king like all of the other nations to judge them and to go out for, to go out to war for them. And of course, it's a famous passage, and the Lord says, "You know, don't be, don't be, don't be mad for yourself, Samuel. It's not you they've rejected; it's me as being king over them." So, First Samuel, eight four through seven, and the Lord does exactly what they want. He gives them a king like all the other nations, and his name is Saul. Now, there are a couple of things that are going on there. Number one, in what way is Saul like all the other nations as a king? Well, here's the key. He comes from the tribe of Benjamin and the city of Gibeah. Now, if you recall, um, back in the book of Judges, in the last chapters of the book of Judges, uh, the Benjaminites from Gibeah uh, murder the Levite's concubine, rape and murder her, and then they're almost exterminated mm -hmm. um, from, first, uh, from Judges 19. Uh, they're almost exterminated because of that. Um, Israel has to wage holy war on the tribe of Benjamin because the tribe of Benjamin has become fully Canaanite, right? In fact, Judges 19 is modeled after Genesis 19, the Sodom and Gomorrah event. So the Benjaminites have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so when Israel asked for a king like all the other nations, and then in 1 Samuel 8, uh, 9, or after 1 Samuel 8, they choose um, Saul, it, you should you should expect to hear in the background something like dun dun dun. <laughs> you know he's from Gibeah, Benjamin. That's not good. That's right. not good. In contrast to the fact, you know, in the Book of Judges, Judah is portrayed as faithful and mostly successful in their conquest of the land and stuff like that. And they're actually the ones who have to go up and lead the battle against Benjamin. Mm -hmm. There's this there's this contrast there. Um, and so and actually Saul's name as well is the verb to ask is what they asked for is Sha'al. And then Saul's name is Shaul, what is asked for. Mm -hmm. So even his name means, you know, you asked for it, you got it. <laughs> and so that was, that, was, that was Israel's plan and they got it and it didn't work for them. Right? Now, kingship was always in the mind of the Lord all the way back in Deuteronomy 17. And Israel was to choose a king uh, that, or 
Israel didn't have a king that the Lord would choose at his time and his person. And that had that happened to be David later after Saul, after Saul was rejected. I mean, from a biblical theological standpoint, like Miles is driving at the the whole Samuel narrative in many ways is set up to contrast Saul and David with Saul being pictured as this one that the people, cho- I mean, he's head and shoulders above the rest. He's handsome. You know, he, they're like, Ooh, that's, that's according to our heart. Right. Yep. And, uh, and then David comes along and he's this ruddy shepherd youngest, you know, like has none of the marks that the people want. And, and God's like, but, but he's who I want. I mean, so the, even, even just the flow of the narrative drives at the translation that, that miles and, and others uh, kind of recognize is better than than how we normally interpret it when you know when we're just so drunk on our ability to be awesome for jesus uh um yeah i agree i agree it's uh but the nice thing is too you know um the way in which the narrative is set up that god's electing love cannot be removed from from david as opposed to saul is uh, an assurance of pardon. Kind yeah, of thing, absolutely. To put it that way, because if you think about Saul's life, you know, Saul Saul didn't want to be king. The mantle was thrust upon him. Uh, God gave him a new mind or a new heart in order to, uh, to, to serve as king. And, and kingship is removed from him for two basic sins. One is that he did not wait for Samuel to offer a sacrifice before they went into battle. And so he offered the sacrifice. So he's kind of religiously zealous, right? He didn't want to go to battle without securing the Lord's favor. Got in trouble for it. It was disobedient. The second one was when he was supposed to go out and um, destroy the Amalekites, um, put them under the ban. He brought back the king and some of the spoils so they could have celebrate the victory and kind of have a party. And again, that was against the, the ban rule. And so mm-hmm. those, two, those two items of disobedience got, got kingship removed from Saul. The striking thing is, is that, you know, with Saul, you have kind of this uh, religious fervor for, uh, to, to make the sacrifice and the kind of political mercy not to kill everybody, which we might see in our day and age is something, you know, commendable. But then when David sins, for example, with um, Bathsheba and then with the census, right, uh, those sins, you know, the one with Bathsheba he has to murder the husband and the one with the census, 70,000 people die. And so these seem to be way more egregious in terms of the ranking of sin, but still the electing love is not removed from David at that point because because it was Yahweh's choice Hmm. and confirmed in in 2 Samuel 7. In fact, in 2 Samuel 7, 21, I'm going to actually dial that up and read it. In 2 Samuel 7, 21, this is the Davidic covenant. Uh, where, where God furthers his election by making this uh, permanent covenant with David that from his line, right, the Messiah would come. And in 721, he says this. Uh, this is, I'll start with 720. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. This is the, this is the exact same prepositional phrase, according to your own heart. And in fact, the NIV translates it according to your own will, so so that you don't miss the fact that it's adverbial. So here's David's commentary at the climax of the Davidic covenant, 
saying, this is all according to your heart, God. There's no special thing in me that makes me qualified to do this. Yeah, I mean, that's the constant theme of Scripture, strength through weakness. You see that. Uh, you see that in the book of Judges. You see that in the books of Samuel and Kings all the time. And uh, it's, it's uh, a tremendous theme um, because it, it, what it does is it reminds us that the, the Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace is a temporary and typological administration uh, waiting for the full revelation to come. And so all the flaws and the imperfections uh, uh, remind us that something better is coming. In fact, what's interesting is that we could say, you know, of all the sins, all of David's sins, you know, the two most prominent would be the David and Bathsheba sin and the census sin. But those are also the two sins um, from which A, Solomon comes, and then B, the place to build the temple. And so, again, you see God working, changing the catastrophe into kind of a eucatastrophe mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, and so these things are highlighted in order to point out uh, the, the nature of the events described and how that works. Uh, um, uh, it explain to our listeners the difference between catastrophe and eucatastrophe, if you would, real quick, because uh, <laughs> that's not a, uh, a, 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 a Tolkien writes about that a little bit every now and yeah. then, but uh, that's well, a literary buzzword that not everybody may know. So, so it's like, um, you, you know, it's like message on Gelion in Greek and then, Euangelion, good message. So the EU prefix means good. And what I mean by that is, I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, the first time I, I tried to start, a, the first time I engaged in doctoral studies, my wife and I saved up some money. and We went to um, over to England to study with Gordon Wenham. And w- within the first six months, she got really sick. Uh, we had to come home, had kind of complications. We're not able to go back. And after a year, I had to like shut down that program get out. We lost $25,000, basically a year of our life. And I didn't know what I was going to do professionally at that point anymore. Um, And that catastrophe uh, caused us to move back to New England. Um, I I picked up my my job again at Gordon College. My wife was working at Gordon-Conwell and um, I met Gary Pratico. Um, I had never met him there while I was a student, but I had only met him there after I had come back. And uh, that brought that changed the course of my career uh, and our partnership in the Hebrew grammar studies and stuff like that. It was, it was amazing. So really that catastrophe got orchestrated into a eucatastrophe. Um, and so uh, as so many things in my life, you know, uh, so that's what I meant by that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Very well. Kevin. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were about to jump in there. Oh no, I was just, I was just nodding along. Ah, I can jump in if you want me to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what I'll jump in. I mean, one of the things that you see with when we when we take this approach to David, it really it doesn't just change First Samuel thirteen fourteen. It it really changes the entire narrative of what we do with the rest of Samuel. Mm-hmm. It changes what we do with David and Goliath because all of a sudden we're not duty bound to make David this impenetrable hero, uh, we're, we're, we're now free to let the text actually say what the text says, which is David didn't just have a whole lot to offer. And, but, but he saw this, this, this whole, you know, all the curse language and, and all that's going on there. He recognized the, the covenantal structure trying to be shifted by the Philistines and, and and new suzerains trying to be set up. And he's like, no, 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 we've got one. 
and he will defend us. God is going to do this. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that curses God? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's just the, the all, everything that's going on there is just absolutely beautiful. When you start to recognize that what's going on there is God is acting as the 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 suzerain, as the the faithful to his covenant, keeping his promises, defending his people, working through, you know, you know, secondary means or whatever the, the language of the confession is there to, to, to bring it about. But it's God that is working in order, we're told, to make his name great so that he will be known, so that it will be known that there is a God in Israel, that they have someone looking out for them. And that's just that's just such a better story. It's such a better sermon. It's better life than, hey, go slay your giants. Because we're we're screwed if that's what we have to do. Right. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Tim Keller. What, Tim what Keller. Is, yeah, what does Tim Keller say? It's it's the, the gospel is, is is a joy inflicting message, not a crushing weight. Yeah, he also and, says uh he says that the the message that children are given to uh, go and uh, what are the giants you need to face? He says, uh, it's too bad that children are not smart enough to know that they need to sue their Sunday school teacher for malpractice. Yes. That's his sermon. (laughs) That's his sermon on born of the gospel. Yeah. Uh, On on first Peter, I think that is, I make my students listen to that every year in, in my class in terms of a hermeneutical perspective, because it's really important perspective. But in that kind of, it, it makes um, sense of other parts of scripture too, like um, the call of David in 1 Samuel 16. Um, you can see first the oldest brother comes alive and Samuel says, surely this is him. I mean, he's mature, he's good looking, this is the dude, firstborn. And then it's not. And it's and then they rank through all the sons until they get to little old David. And they say in 1 Samuel 16, 7, right, this is an important one. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I rejected him. Then it says this, for the, for, for the Lord sees as man, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And if you look at the Hebrew again here, it's, it's, much, it's a little bit different. It says, for man sees with the eyes, but God sees or Yahweh sees with the heart. So Yahweh sees with his will. Does that make sense? His mind. He perceives way more than just the external physical realities. He he has this plan of redemption that he's accomplishing and he knows exactly what he's doing. And so man sees only what he can see with his eyes, but God sees what he can see with his mind and uh, and his and his will. Yeah, there's such a there's such a a bad anthropology of man that is communicated in in this wrong understanding that because I think again everybody thinks that what the verse is saying is that God happened to just see some good qualities in David that nobody else can see. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and goodness, that changes that, that changes so much of, of, of how we understand this passage and how we understand David, as Kevin was saying, it's, it's uh, this is super helpful. Well, yeah. and, and this drives back to the, the questions that we started with, with miles of why does the pastor, need to, you know, the lowly pastor, why does he need to bother with the languages? Well, if you read this in the, in the ESV, uh, the Lord or man sees, looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Again, it, it sets it up, not as Miles is saying, as describing how God is seeing that, 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 you know, he's looking according to his will. He's thinking about things and processing things. It sets it up again as this measure of two people. Um, and, and so, but 
and in all of these different points, it's getting back to actually dealing with the Hebrew and what's actually going on in the text and, and what's actually being processed there and what's being stated there that leads us to better, actually life-giving sermons for our people rather than sending them out with a checklist of like, hey, here, let me just go ahead and tell you all the ways you're going to fail this week so that you'll come back and need another <laughs> shot in the arm next week, right? I mean, it, it's this... That's the truth. We make sycophants instead of like people full of, of the love of God and, and secure in, oh, this is all God's work in me. And, and he's full of grace. And, and, and it's, it's, but again, getting back to the languages like helps us get to where we actually need to be to say what we are supposed to say to our people. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it helps to make sense of things then like, you know, Paul in Acts 13 makes reference to David in this way. So Acts 13, 22, it says, and when he had removed him, that is Saul, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. So again, you can see a man after God's own choosing or selection there. It makes sense. Not, not David's quality or characteristic, but a man of God's own will and desire that would produce the messianic seed. And then it says, who will do all my will, right? And again, it's not anything that David had in him, but it was the Lord's will that it was David who would be the king through whom the seed would come. Does that make sense? And so you're not only getting better interpretations in the Old Testament, but better in the New Testament, making sense of those things as well. So yeah, it's like it's all one story or something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. But if you get it wrong once, it's a, it's a ripple effect. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's. That's that's the result of kind of, you know, the Enlightenment and the, the ravages of higher criticism on the Bible where they dismiss the historicity of anything in the Bible. And they just thought it was made up stories to support Israel's monarchy and stuff like that. And so when you have that, what are you left with? There's no real story or there's no one story. There's just these made up things. And so in order to rescue them, all we can do is take the accounts, David and Goliath or Joshua and Jericho. And, and make moralism out of it, right? You know, mm. so if, if it's not, if the Old Testament is not testifying to the personal work of Christ, like the New Testament says it is, then all you have left is moralism, right? And so, and that's how, that's that's kind of the, um, the legacy that we grew up with in the, the latter part of the 20th century. And I think really uh, we're, we're beginning to break away from that now. Yeah, the, the popular- Also on that, it, it's a result of just the, from practical standpoint, like there's there's all the, the kind of academic underpinnings of all this that have kind of ripped the Bible apart and, and left mm-hmm. us dealing with in, in these atomistic ways that and, and all of that. But also from the practical side, there's so many pastors that if, if you said, hey, your job is to translate, deal with the text, they would look at you and say, well, I don't have time to do that. Because I've got, you know, this program and that program and this thing and that thing. And, and there's there's a basic sense also where we, we've misunderstood what the pastor's job is sure, and what, what our role is so that taking the time to do this stuff, spending the hours it takes in your study to, to translate and, and think through and make all these connections across testaments right. and kind of really deal with the Bible as one story it it 
it takes too long. I've got other things that I've got to do. Mm. And, and it, it always reminds me of when Jesus says to Nicodemus, like, Hey, what have you been telling people? I want to say, well, what do you think your job is? Mm. Like what, what were you called to do? It was to give people the word of God. I mean, and that's so abundantly clear throughout. I mean, you read the pastoral epistles and Paul's like, Hey, tell them the story, deal with the word of God with your people. And you put both of those things together, this, this kind of unhinging of scripture and then this unhinging of what pastoral ministry is. And all of a sudden, all of it becomes like, just look, find a lesson that they're going to feel good about. Right. And, and, you know, don't spend a whole lot of time trying to give some big intellectual thing or, or, or whatever, just give them some nuggets. Uh, if I hear <laughs> nuggets, I, uh, it's just, Ridiculous. Yeah, ministers are ministers of the word. And so that's what they're offering up. They're, they're, they are uh, proclaiming the gospel, the good news about Jesus from the word of God. And so you, we, need, we need to make sure that that's what they understand as their primary job description. But I'll argue this. Some people say, I just don't have time to translate the Hebrew and get into the Hebrew or the Greek or the Aramaic. And um, I think just the opposite is true. I think knowing Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic makes you a much more effective and efficient student of scripture over time. There's an initial investment where it's really hard and laborious and time consuming, but over time, you know, it makes you someone who can anticipate what you're going to find in a commentary or critique what you find in a commentary. So it actually makes you, I think, more efficient if you'll give yourself to it. Everything, every skill you begin takes a lot of practice and time to get used to, right? Uh, but once you become proficient at it or even, you know, good at it, um, then, you know, instead of having to consult nine commentaries, you probably only need to consult two or three. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're not weighted down. I feel like sometimes when I hear sermons that all I'm hearing is a pastor rehearsing all the secondary literature that they had read over the week and haven't really been changed by the text itself. And so I really want people to come away from sermons feeling like, not that the pastor was great or not that the, the commentary quotes or the Calvin quotes were great, but that, but that the word of God is great and the person of Jesus is great that, that it testifies to. And so hiding behind good exegesis is helpful like that. And so you just kind of get out of the way, let the text do the work. Yeah, I, m- I remember when I was in seminary, I was working at Providence teaching the youth and we were going through Romans and, and I found that it was prep work was quicker and better, far richer, if I translated the passage and parsed everything and figured out like how the verbs and part of how everything was being used, then I would go and read commentaries. And after a few weeks, I was like, okay, I'm not adding a lot by reading commentaries. Right. And, and, and it, it was quicker to do that. And then as I've continued my studies, one of my elders in particular has recognized like, hey, um, yeah, you need to keep pushing because you're better for us when you're doing that level of study, your sermons are better. Like you're, it's and, and it is it, you. You the further you dive in, you know, to this whole of of the biblical languages, the better you become as a minister of the word. Uh, but we forget that that's what we are—that we're ministers of the word of God. Yeah. That's very important. The law of the Lord is perfect, giving life to the soul. And so, um, if if we allow the word to do that. Um, people people will be changed by the goodness of the gospel in that way, and their souls will be revived. 
Yeah, so I agree, Kevin. I'm I'm all about that with you, and thankful that you're carrying on that tradition. It's it's uh, it's tremendous. Um, it's a tremendous honor to be a part of it, and uh, to hear to hear it continuing. Yeah, well, you and Dr. Curran and, and and Brian Estelle, he had you had him come teach prophets in a, a week intensive, and uh, particularly you and Dr. Estelle, just God used y'all. The Spirit worked in me to go. Okay, wait a minute. This Bible is not what I thought it was. It's so much better, uh, and the, the stories are better. The, the grace is richer. His faithfulness is, you know, it, it just blew my mind. And so, yeah, it's been continue to push. And I think the other thing that's helpful to do to understand, like I growing up in California, for me, it was a very dispensational context, right? And so, in that context, the Old Testament is like old, angry God, a lot of death and violence, and, you know, and the New Testament, you know, Jesus, like hippies, rainbows, butterflies, stuff like that. And so having that big disconnect didn't allow me really to see how the Old Testament was the gospel promised beforehand, which is what Paul calls it, Romans 1, 1 to 3. And then experiencing covenant theology in seminary being shown that there's, there's one plan, one narrative, and that the Old Testament, New Testament go together, uh, just changed my life. Mm-hmm. And so it's, uh, and, and it continues to do so as I continue to um, see how it works, the covenantal nature of the Bible. Amen. I, and it changes, it changes the life of people in the pews when they, when they begin to read the Old Testament and see the gospel in it. I remember coming into the Reformed faith, uh, my part of the, the thing that put me on this track was, was was hearing Keller and his his little what's the Bible basically about where he moves through all of those Jesus mm-hmm. is the truer and better and yeah. and it it really did blow my mind and you know you mentioned moralism a second ago um, because if the Bible is not a cohesive story like that then all the Old Testament really is good for is is moralism and the the secular charge that all religions are basically the same uh, if the Bible is moralism then that charge is true. If, if if the Bible is is just about be a good person and and God will reward you with heaven, um, if if the Bi- message of the Bible is basically moralism, then the charge that all religions are basically the same is yeah guilty as charged for sure. So I found I found a a, a great deal of people are are really really blown away in this. Um, Baptist dispensational context that I'm in here in the Bible Belt, they've never heard Christ preach from the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and and on the road to Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, mm-hmm. when when Jesus yeah. opened, interprets them in all the scriptures the things concerning themselves, um, and 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 then he vanishes, and that those two disciples said, "Did our hearts not burn within us as he opened to us the scriptures?" Uh, which I, I always say. Uh, our listeners have heard me say this before. You know, Jesus did three miracles there. He miraculously kept them from seeing him. Mm-hmm. He miraculously opened their eyes, and then he vanished. And you'd think they would say, "Did our eyes not? Did our hearts not burn within us when he vanished, or when he opened our eyes?" But it was it was seeing uh, himself in in the Old Testament is the thing that caused them to run all the way back to Jerusalem and tell everyone what they heard. So. Yeah. It reminds yeah. that, that reminds me of Mark or John 539, where mm-hmm. Jesus talking to said, you diligently search the scriptures because you think that by them you have life. But these are the scriptures that testify about me and yet you refuse to come to me. And so, yeah. and we don't, I don't think I realized growing up that when he said you diligently study the scriptures, 
that he was, you know, in my mind, I think, well, yeah, Old New Testament, but no, he's talking about the Old Testament there, right? There was no New Testament at that point. That's right. And so um, you've got several places like John 5, Romans 1, uh, Luke 24, that just make that so clear. And the entire book of Hebrews, right? Uh, well, and, and, and in 2 Timothy 3, you know, we or, or we remember all scriptures are out by God, you know, 3, 16, 17. But if we back up, he says, continue what you've learned from the knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, right? Mm. The Old Testament. The next statement which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, 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 what? Yeah. I mean, it's just like, just absolutely blatant. Yeah. That's what those are about. They're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That, <laughs> you know, and it's just like, why don't we memorize that verse along with the next one? Yeah. Like let's back our memory verse plan up. Just one verse uh, is all about Context is king, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, yeah. Text, a text without a context is a con. <laughs> well, definitely thank you guys for being a part of the, the podcast. Hopefully this was beneficial to our listeners. Um, if you have any questions about anything that was discussed in this episode or previous episodes, you can always uh, reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or you can email us at contact at assuranceofpardon.com and uh, reach out, out at us on the website. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to answer questions of our listeners. And as always, this is Assurance of Barden. God bless.